Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, the next installment in my Moonshot Marathon series. In the hopes of finally qualifying for Boston, I hope to run a sub-330 marathon at the end of May. I have been training for months, on and off. I've had a few injuries. But recently, I've gotten into serious training, and things are actually looking pretty good. Then in the kick, some fast questions for the fastest man in the world. And our staff tries a whole different spin on the beer mile. But first, we recap one of the biggest stories of the year in running, and probably among the most astonishing running feats of all time. This past Saturday, on a Formula One racetrack in Monza, Italy, three Nike-sponsored marathoners set out to crack one of the most formidable barriers in our sport, the two-hour marathon. The event was the culmination of years of research by the Nike team and months of closely monitored training by the athletes. Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya, Lelisa Desissa of Ethiopia, and Zersene Terese of Eritrea. Alas, they did not break the two-hour barrier. In fact, both Desissa and Terese dropped off the pace right around the halfway mark. Kipchoge, however, wearing a bright red singlet, ran alone behind a team of pacers, and was on pace until about the 35-kilometer mark, or around 21 or 22 miles. He came so close and ended up finishing in 2 hours and 25 seconds. Kipchoge's previous personal best was 2.03.05, which he ran last year at the London Marathon. His run in Monza was incredible to watch. I set my alarm for 11.30 p.m., to get up and watch the live stream along with thousands of other running fans who were paying attention and weighing in on social media. And Runner's World writer and columnist Alex Hutchinson was one of the lucky few who was there in Italy. Not only was he there to report on the race, but he also provided expert commentary during the final 20 minutes or so, helping viewers understand the significance of Kipchoge's performance. And He later ran a half marathon under similar conditions on the Monza track. This week, I talked with Alex via Skype about the race and the experience of being on the ground during this historic attempt. Alex and I were joined by Dr. Michael Joyner, also via Skype. Dr. Joyner is a physician researcher at the Mayo Clinic and one of the world's leading experts on human performance and exercise physiology. He was one of the first to predict the two-hour barrier could be broken In 1991, when the marathon world record was 2.06.50, he published a journal article predicting that a, quote, hypothetical best subject, end quote, could run the marathon in 1.57.58. Back then, that kind of talk inspired a lot of skepticism. Now, thanks in part to Eliud Kipchoge, who is an actual best subject, I think it's safe to say that at least some of those doubts have turned into open-mindedness and maybe even into hopefulness. It's worth noting that Kipchoge's two-hour and 25-second performance will not be recognized as a world record, largely because of the pacing strategy that the team used. We'll get into the details of that and lots of other things coming up next. Thanks for joining us.
Alex Hutchinson and Dr. Michael Joyner, thank you so much for joining us on the Runner's World Show to review the Breaking Two effort uh, that took place um, late Friday night, at least Eastern time in the U.S. I know it was um, a little bit later for you, Alex, because you were there in Monza for this attempt. So welcome home. And what was it like? Thanks, David. I, it's it's good to be back home, but it was a it was a real ride. I mean, it was it, it, there was the sort of full range of emotions because two, two of the runners dropped off the pace very early before even the halfway mark, and this sort of, there was this sort of sense that it was going to be a disaster. And then Elliot Kipchoge had this amazing performance where, it, for a while, late in the race, looked like he was actually going to dip under two hours. So there was this sort of impending euphoria, and then there was the sense of you know he didn't quite make it, but it, it, it was amazing. So and and as you as you know, it's been the culmination of you know, a five-month journey for us and a 20-year journey for for Mike. I think who's been thinking <laughs> about this for a long time. So it's it. it you know, I, I feel I feel wrung out like a sponge because it it was just a a, a thrilling and amazing and a, and a roller coaster ride of a of a trip. Well, we are going to get into the details and talk about lots of the variables that were at play in this attempt. Uh, but first, Mike, how did you watch this attempt? Where were you? I was in my office at home. Uh, I had gone to bed early and, and gotten up to watch the attempt because I was on call in the hospital over the weekend and I had to be at work at 7 a.m. Uh, so I watched it with, with, with uh, great interest and uh, thought that really, uh, for at least from, from my vantage point, they got it right. I agree with Alex. It was uh, touch and go for a while, or, or as uh, the Duke of Wellington said, it could have been a close run thing. Yeah, the whole thing did have the feel of a high wire act, and it did have this sense of real-time drama to it. And, you know, there was there was this feeling, if you were paying attention to social media, as I was while I was watching this through, the, through this Twitter feed, that there were, you know, thousands of people at this very moment in different parts of the country and even the world watching this thing in real time. And it was kind of unlike any sporting event I've ever taken in before, certainly unlike any running event. And I think part of it was this edge and this this risk of, oh, my God, what, you know, what is going to happen here? This could go wrong or this could be an absolutely historic moment that we're all going to be sort of watching at the same time and, and commenting upon. I've looked at the, some of the stats on the the live stream, and you know that that as of a couple of days ago, that the Facebook page where they were streaming it had been viewed five million times, and the YouTube video had been viewed another half million times. Now that doesn't mean everyone actually watched the whole thing, but I definitely got the sense that there were people from all over, and I got I got you know emails and text messages from people I hadn't heard from in years who weren't runners, just guys I knew in high school and stuff saying, whoa, I just saw you on TV because I was on the on the broadcast. And I would text back and say, what were you doing You know, watching a marathon? <laughs> right. I'd say, well, you know, I, I was up and I, I saw it was starting and I just, I kind of got hooked in. It was it was pretty interesting. For what it's worth, during the live stream, and we, we hosted uh, the, the Twitter live stream on our site, traffic was 1,800% higher than it normally is during those hours. I mean, it was the biggest spike that we've ever seen on runnersworld.com for any specific page um, or event. It was fascinating to see. I, I saw several people who whom I know and have been following for a while even say things like, listen, I have been criticizing this project from the beginning but here I am watching it, you know, in the middle of the night and it's and I can't look away. It's absolutely riveting. 
and I think it's good for running. Yeah, and it's great to see a guy like Elliot Kipchoge. Those of us who follow the sport have known that he's a unique, unique talent, a, 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 an amazing competitor, and a really interesting guy. Uh, I, I love the fact that that he was in front of millions of people for a couple of hours, and, and now a lot of a lot more people know his unique story and how what an amazing runner he is. So let's start there then. Let's talk about Eliud Kipchoge, who was unquestionably the star of this show, uh, even at the beginning, even going into it. Uh, Runner's World, we did a survey where we asked 24 experts in the sport, including you, Mike, for their predictions about what would happen. And only three people said that two hours would be broken. And all three of those people said that that person was going to be Eliud Kipchoge. So Pretty much no one thought that it was going to be either Lalissa de Sissa or Zersene Tedese. What Was the feeling like that on the ground, Alex? Was this kind of from the opening gun, the Eliud Kipchoge show? Yeah, and I would say that it's, it's almost been that way a little bit since, you know, since the project was announced in December. Everyone knew that Kipchoge was the big gun. He's the defending Olympic gold medalist. He's he's been at the top of the sport for over a decade. He won a won a world championship when he was just 18 years old back in 2003, and he's put together one of the best streaks of marathoning uh, in history, so, sort of over the last three or four years. So, the other guys, they had their unique strengths and they had their interesting backstories. But Kipchoge is just he's a kind of you know once in a generation or it may turn out once in several generations runner and so there there was never anyone who was going to be more of a favorite than him and every everyone on the ground to to i, I think you would have had trouble finding uh, anyone in the entire you know city of Monza where the where the event took place who would have taken a bet against Kipchoge being the the front runner Mike what is it about Kipchoge biomechanically physiologically what is it about him as a runner that makes him so special well, if you go back to the ideas that emerged in, that were in the 1970s and 80s and were captured in my original modeling paper, you know, he clearly has a high maximal oxygen uptake or a big engine. He also... Uh, so that's VO2 to, max, right? VO2 max, right. He's also able to run at a very high fraction of VO2 max for a long period of time, probably 85% of max, which is like having a big V12 engine and a tiny Ferrari and a red line of 9,000. So, you know, he's, he's got those two pieces of the equation. And normally you can't tell who's an economical or efficient runner based solely on watching them. But if you watch him run, his vertical displacement isn't particularly great. He's very smooth. There's no braking action and so forth. So he's probably does well on the efficiency measurements as well. But there are many, many people that would have some combination of those factors that would sort of get them in the game to be an elite endurance runner. And I think what we saw, especially um, because he was on the camera for two hours, <laughs> is a man who, who knows how to relax and really manage his suffering. I mean, if you think about it, an effort like this is like putting your hand in very hot water. And over two hours, slowly turning the temperature in the water up uh, for maybe uh, until you can't stand it and then seeing how long you can leave it in. Hmm. And that's what he was so good at. So what struck me as much as anything was his ability to put forth this supreme effort, but also apparently relax at the same time. And I think that's the great paradox of these sorts of performances. You see it in Usain Bolt's face. You see it in Michael Phelps when his butterfly stroke doesn't deteriorate at the end of a 200-meter butterfly. But for somebody to do this for an entire marathon, a pacers, no pacers, drafting, no drafting is quite remarkable. 
a lot of people were commenting on the fact that Kipchoge seemed to be smiling throughout the race. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't think he was necessarily consciously smiling. Like I, I, people have often asked me what I'm laughing at during a race and I'm thinking I wasn't laughing. That's just my sort of grimace. But even if he wasn't laughing, he was definitely, he had that serene look on his face with a little bit of a, a grin, you know, a re- relaxed cheeks. And it's a bit of a cliche, but that, you know, if you can keep your face relaxed, probably the rest of your body is relaxed. And he, he clearly, he just had that look as if he was sort of daydreaming or, you know, reading the phone book or whatever, whereas the other guys looked like they were, you know, wrestling a bear. And uh, yes. he, he, you could tell that he was exactly what Mike is saying. He was the kind of one who was most under control. And even though he was putting forth a supreme effort, it was you couldn't read that on his face. Once he was off the pace, he was having to dig deep and he could no longer... I mean, he still wasn't exactly, you know, freaking out or anything, but he, yeah. his, 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 there was a lot of tension in his face at that point. But it was the sort of from the half marathon point to, a, you know, to to about 20 miles, he still looked, or even more than 20 miles, more, more, you know, 23 miles or so, uh, he, he still looked relaxed. And then once the pace started to slip away and he had to start to press to try and catch back up to the car, then. What, what looked like a smile and was maybe not a smile, but was at least a relaxed face became a more tense face. And you could see, and that was, that was probably the best indicator that he's probably not going to be able to catch back up to the car and, and break under that. He's, he's no longer looking relaxed. David, my, my guess is, is and if you uh, have ever run fast or people that have been sub elite or, or certainly elite runners or other distance uh, or endurance athletes will tell you that, you know, you're using your breathing, the burning sensation in your legs, how hot, warm you feel, and so forth, are all kind of feeding into this general perception of effort. And what happens as you fatigue, the first thing is you, you're going the same speed and your muscles are producing the same force, but it requires more effort and you have this increased perception of effort. And then you have a, a bigger increase in the perception of effort followed by a decline in speed or a you know, a fade. Some people kind of fall off a cliff and really buy it, where he was in a bit of a controlled fade. So my guess is that he was trying to carefully monitor himself, push as absolutely hard as he could. And while he was straining, he was also reminding himself from time to time, relax your face, relax your breathing, relax your shoulders, you know, nice, good, good, good high knee lift, get some extension, get some push off. So I bet he was in a bit of a mental dialogue to stay as relaxed as possible while his pace started to fade just a little bit and his effort started to go up exponentially. Yeah. I think in addition to that, they did two other things that would have been quite helpful. One is the pacing per se, not so much the drafting, but just having other people around you to help you establish this sort of rhythm, I think, could be very helpful. And then, you know, who knows what the feeding did or did not do. But uh, cold, sweet things also will at least temporarily... um, change the way you feel about things and change your perception of effort. I mean, there are studies where they've had given people cold fluids, just had them rinse their mouth out and they feel better. And also given people sweet fluids and had them rinse their mouth out and feel better. So in addition to any sort of physiological effect or biochemical effect, those sorts of things would also uh, be a big boost psychologically so he could save his effort and, in, in, you know, toward the very end when he did start to fade a bit. That's a great point, Mike. And I noticed that he was taking, he took bottles uh, I can't remember the exact locations, but it was something with, you know, maybe three minutes left in the race and, you know, seven minutes left in the race. Like in the last lap, he was taking bottles of carbohydrate drink. Now, there's no way that's going to make it to his muscles. Right. He's taking that for, for, for exactly what you said, that reason, the mental boost. 
Well, Alex, let's talk about what was in those bottles for a minute. Let's just start jumping into some of the many, many variables that the Nike team and the athletes were trying to optimize on their way to shaving almost three minutes off this marathon world record. And one of them was nutrition and hydration. The Nike team worked very closely in particular with um, Tedese and DeSissa, who typically in their running careers had not really taken in much fluid and in some cases hadn't taken in any carbohydrates in the late stages of marathons. So there's a fair amount of upside, at least in theory, for those runners. And they had a very detailed hydration plan. They were being given fluids on a very specific and consistent cadence, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. You, you brought up some very interesting points, one of which is that Tedessa and DeSissa managed to be extremely good runners while doing what we would consider everything wrong, and, you know, in terms of nutrition and hydration, at least. And I, I think that's an important reminder that you, you, we have to keep in perspective the relative importance of different things. So being a great marathoner, 99% of it may be training and, and you know, obviously some some role of genetics and, and uh you, you know, the basics of going out and running, then all these other things that we like to worry about and, and that, you know, frankly, people like me write about in magazines, they're real, but the, they're the cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake. And, and really, that's that's where Nike was chasing some some small gains here is, is looking at, okay, we know these guys are already good even without us. They're very, very good. But can we get them that extra, you know, half a percent? And in terms of the, so they, they were using fairly standard sports drinks, but as you said, personalized to the tolerances and abilities of each athlete. But the biggest surprise to me was that it turned out, I, I got a message partway through the race that Kipchoge was using an, uh, an experimental new Swedish drink uh, by a company named Morton. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, M-A-U-R-T-E-N. Where they What they do is they have some process of encapsulating carbohydrate in a hydrogel that makes it easier to absorb higher concentrations. Nothing's been published yet about this, so I, I remain a little bit skeptical, or at least uh, I'm, I'm waiting for more information before I decide whether this is a great thing. But what was what was surprising to me was that, so I got this information, so I, I went and asked the Nike scientist. I said, hi, I heard, I heard Kipchoge's using this new Swedish drink that everyone's talking about. And they said, no, no, that's not right. So after the race, I found the guy who was giving him his bottles, and I said, I heard Kipchoge's using this new Swedish drink. And he said, no, no, that's not right. And then he said, well... I mean, I suppose, I, I don't know what was in the bottles. I mean, his manager filled up the bottles. So I went and asked his manager, and he said, yeah, we st this is the first time we've used it. He's been experimenting with it in training for, for two months. So one way to look at this is to say uh, that's a big, a big PR uh, coup for the Swedish company because he just ran an amazing marathon using this drink for the first time. Uh, the other way to look at it is to, is to say, you know, there was this perception that Nike was sort of the puppet master here and was controlling every small detail. And they were certainly giving as much feedback as, as they could and as the athletes wanted. But in the end, the athletes still had a lot of autonomy and they were making some decisions for themselves. And Kipchoge decided that, that uh, you know, look, this, this drink seemed to agree with him when he tried it out in training. And so he decided to try it out in the race. And he didn't, you know, he didn't even tell Nike about it. He just went ahead and did it. And, and, it, and it, you know, it paid off for him. Did you get any sense for, for why Kipchoge made this choice? I know you asked him about it after the race. Yeah. Um, to, to be fair, he, 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 yeah, it was, this was, he, he did a series of interviews. You know, he had a press conference, and then a few of us got a chance to ask him one-on-one -on -one questions. And I, I was kind of last in the line, and he looked like he was exhausted. And, and each time I would see his handler say, you know, okay, this is the last guy, I promise. And <laughs> yeah. someone else would sit there. He said, I asked him about the, the, the drink, and he said, you know, if you want to ask about nutrition, I could give you a two-hour lecture on that. 
but let's not do that right now. He looked like he was pretty tired, and I said, yeah, okay, let's not do that now. We'll we'll circle back and and and, uh, and we'll find out more about this. But from talking to his manager, it's, so his manager also represents Kenanisa Bikili, the great Ethiopian runner, who used this drink to run the second fastest marathon time in history back in uh, in the fall in Berlin. And and Bikili used this Swedish drink uh, in that race. So. So his management team had experience with this drink and had had very positive results with Bikili. So I suspect they they said, hey, hey, listen, Elliot, uh, give this a try. See what you think. I did some sort of back of the envelope calculations on a man the size of Kipchoge, some estimates about how much carbohydrate he was burning. And I thought he would have been fine with iced tea and table sugar uh, in the right concentration. So I think it it didn't hurt him at all. But but I don't think that that the... uh, Feeding per se was was responsible for much of this two minutes and thirty second bump he got. And Alex, how frequently were the athletes being given their their drinks? Yeah, it it turns out that's a more complicated question that, than I than I originally thought. They they were originally planning to give them drinks once a lap, which is every one point six miles, which is every you know seven or eight minutes, which is super frequent. Um, and I think that was easy from a logistical sense to just think about once a lap. But what they realized, I think, after the half marathon that they had in March was that just because that's once a lap doesn't mean that's the best time. And it may be too frequent for some of the guys. So they actually ended up adjusting to they had a custom distance roughly every two miles or so they were taking a drink. But it was customized for each of the runners. And basically, they had a couple of guys on bikes. You, you might have seen them on the telecast kind of whizzing around with them. Uh, and one of them had a big box full of color-coded drinks on the back of the bike and a, and a piece of paper with this complicated thing saying, all right, Elliot gets, you know, bought this bottle at 2.3 miles and Lalissa gets this bottle at 2.4 miles. So they were passing out bottles uh, just from right beside them. And they were doing that in part so that they could try and optimize exactly when the right time to give the guys bottles was. Uh, and also by giving them, handing them bottles from a bike, it, it meant that they didn't have to slow down to pick a bottle up at a table. And, and the Nike estimate was that each time you slow down and pick a bottle up at a table, that's five to seven seconds that it costs you. And then that may be, you know, that's an approximation, obviously. Let's talk about the location and the conditions for a minute. Monza was chosen for several reasons, as the Nike team told us. Uh, one was the track. It was run on that junior track, which was 2.4 kilometers each lap and very gentle turns. It was almost flat, but there was a slight, slight elevation change, which is actually something that they were looking for. But Monza also had other advantages. One of them is that it was relatively sheltered. It was kind of in the middle of a forest so that uh, normally the, the wind is not very strong. And secondly, temperature and, and climate. The average temperature there they felt like was within the range that they thought was ideal. It wasn't perfect. And we saw during the halfway attempt that it actually got very windy on that day. So, Alex, tell us a little bit about what conditions were like on Friday night slash Saturday morning when these guys were making the final attempt. Yeah, I mean, my eyes were barely open when it started at 5:45 in the morning, so I, 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 my memories are all blurry through through half-closed eyes. Uh, but the reason they started so early is to get the the right temperature. Uh, that that was the the coolest part of the day, and uh, it I would say they pretty much got what they hoped for. It was it was mid 50s, low to mid 50s. Uh, it, it was maybe just a little bit humid. You could feel a little bit of clamminess in the air, which would have interfered with their ability to lose heat by sweating. 
uh, and it was calm. I, I think that the wind, the, the number I saw was 0.6 meters per second for wind, which is basically nothing. And, you know, I, I had a chance to run on the track later that day. I, I, I paced a, a friend of mine through a half marathon uh, uh, under the same conditions uh, that Elliot Kipchoge used. We had the Tesla and, and the, the pace car in front of us, and, we, and, and there were three or four of us pacing uh, uh, a writer named Ed Caesar to, 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 uh, to a half marathon. So I had, a, I had an hour and 26 minutes out there to think about what it was like to run on that track. And you wouldn't you wouldn't go there for the scenery. Like it's a beautiful it's it's a former royal park. It's it is lovely. There's trees around that and that and that has some you know, that has some benefits to your, your state of mind. But it's you know, it gets a little repetitive going round and round the same loop. And and what I found is on the back straight, it's very, very long and straight and there's nothing there. So you kind of feel like you're running but you're not moving anywhere because nothing is changing. Uh, whereas then you get to the turn and, and you can feel there's this, a slight sort of bank on the turn and it just feels lovely. It's kind of massaging you around this big bend. And then you get to the home straight and you can see that's where the finish line, the stands and all that stuff is. And it's much easier running along the home straight. And during the race, that's where all the crowd was. That's where the fans were cheering. So I, I feel like there's some maybe, may, there was maybe something missing in not having a bigger crowd there. That Because they would, you know, every seven or eight minutes, they would run around this loop and they'd get one burst of cheering as they went through the finish line. And then they disappeared onto this long, lonely back street where it was sort of quiet as death. Yeah. And 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 you feel like you're not moving because of the home straight. So I think it was cool. I think uh, it it was a, it was a good choice. Uh, I think maybe there is still some potential to make the environment even just a little bit better. Alex, I I wonder, especially since you ran 13.1 miles on this track, what about the surface itself? Did it feel hard? Did it feel faster than a typical road? Well, you know, there were no potholes. Um, <laughs> and, and, and one thing they were really looking for was that it was flat. So I mentioned a bank, but the, there was just on one of the curves, you could just kind of feel like a very gentle bank. But a lot of Formula One tracks, because because of the high speeds, the curves tend to be very banked. And that's not necessarily great for uh, it, that can beat you up a little bit. So um, it, it was a comfortable surface to run on. And it was I think it's a little bit, you know, some of us were chatting afterwards about, well, it feels like a tiny bit more slippery than your average road. And so I wonder if maybe they needed to optimize the rubber on the bottom of the shoes uh, to make sure there was no slipping, or maybe they already did. Um, but yeah, it, it, it felt pretty fast. When I was doing the half marathon, it, it poured rain on us for, for, for the, during the middle of the race. And so it did get a little bit slick. And you know there was a little bit of pooling of water. But fortunately, that didn't, that didn't happen for the marathon. And I think they would have changed the date if there, if there was a possibility. But uh, yeah, it, it did. It, it felt a little fast, but it's it's all it's also hard to know how much of that is in my head. You know, you're on a Formula One track, and there's checkered flags and everything, and you kind of feel you feel like you're going fast just yeah. being there. Okay, another variable was the pacing strategy, uh, which they really were not happy with at the halfway time trial, right, Alex? The the pacers kind of blew up a bit, had trouble staying together, and it was definitely something that they knew that they needed to improve upon for this final attempt. What did you see different? Well, there were a couple of things different. Uh, right away, we knew something was different that they, in that they, they brought in good runners in the half marathon time trial to do the pacing. They brought in great runners to do the, the, the pacing this time. They had 30 pacers, some of the best runners in the world, guys like Bernard Legat, a five-time Olympian. Uh, they had a, a bunch of guys who've been top 10 in the Olympics. Um, so... These guys and, and their job, you know, the pacers were rotating in and out, so they would run about 
they'd run two laps, which is a little less than 5K at a time, and then they'd take a break for half an hour and then do that again. They each did that about three times. But they were running five. They would run 5K in about 14, 15. Uh, you know, yeah, very, very fast. There's not that many people in the world who can do that and do it under control, under enough control to be able to keep the pace perfectly even and to keep in a very tight pacing formation. And that's the other thing that was really different. They they had done wind tunnel testing and aerodynamic modeling to figure out the best pacing formation, which they decided was this six-person arrowhead uh, with with the three other guys behind the arrowhead. And, uh, you know, they tried that in, in, in March at the half marathon, and that's how they started. And within, you know, two minutes, it had shifted from, you know, tight arrowhead to sort of loose amoeba. Um, and yeah. it, it just doesn't, it doesn't have the same aerodynamic effect. So this time what they did is they mounted lasers on top of the Tesla pace car that was driving about 15 feet in front of them. And they projected these lasers to form a three-sided box on the road. And they said to the pacers, run in the box. If the box gets ahead of you, speed up. If it, you know, if it gets behind you, slow down and don't drift to the left or right. And so the result was that was actually probably the biggest and most obvious difference between the final attempt and the half marathon was that the pacers stayed beautifully tight. And it's really hard to run at a fast pace that close to someone else. You have to really trust that the other person is going to keep doing exactly what he or she is, is doing because if they don't, you're going to trip on their heels and, and everyone goes down. So they had a lot of trust in each other. They'd been rehearsing all week. They flew in on Monday to spend the whole week rehearsing this arrowhead formation, which is a big ask for professional runners in the middle of or at the beginning of their, their season. And Alex, compounding the fascination with the Pacers was the variable of switching these guys out every two laps, right? There had to, six Pacers had to come out and six new Pacers had to come in and it was like ballet. How, how did that it, work it, exactly? Yeah, it really was. And this is another th- thing that they had changed around from the initial. In March, they had this formation where they, like in cycling, they would rotate around in a kind of circle. The, the arrowhead guys would shift positions periodically and then they'd kind of peel off and be replaced. And they realized that was too much of a trip hazard at that pace to, to keep tight together. You just can't be rotate, shifting positions and changing, swapping spots with someone. So they had this, this beautiful, beautiful kind of choreography of as you come into the exchange zone, they were changing just three at once and one would move to one side and two would move to the other side. So the arrow would kind of expand to let three guys out. Three other guys would merge in like a, a beautiful freeway merge and then the arrowhead would tighten right back up. So they would execute that perfectly and to, to my knowledge you know i haven't i haven't gone back to you know check the tape but i think i think they were you know 18 for 18 on that because they had 18, 18 exchanges and uh I, as far as i know every one of them worked perfectly and that's that was actually when people were ta- when i was talking to people before the race i said frankly I, I you know after watching the pacers in in march at the at the rehearsal half mar- for the half marathon I don't think they're going to be able to hold the, 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 the formation together. It's just too hard. They haven't rehearsed enough, but I, I was wrong. They, they, with the help of the laser and with the help of you know dance practice for a week, these guys were able to execute their pirouettes with no, with no problem. The other dimension, of course, of, of these pace setters was the camaraderie that really struck me and was a huge topic of conversation online as people were watching this. You know, it's not often that world-class runners like Bernard Lagat, Sam Chalanga, are running a race in service of another. These guys are some of the best in the world, and for years and years, probably their entire careers, they're running to improve their own chances, right? But there was such an amazing sense of teamwork and camaraderie and those late laps when 
Lagat was urging on Kipchoge, and his teammates were literally waving him along, and a different group of pace setters were still bringing in Tedesse and Decisa, even though they had fallen badly back off the pace. It was really human. Did it feel that way in person, Alex? Yeah, it was. I, I, you know, one of the really standout moments was a few minutes after the finish. You know, Kipchoge had been first thing he did when he crossed the line was go for a little jog, and then he lay down and looked like he was about to die. And then all the pacers, because there was this swarm of thirty pacers who were down at the pacing exchange, which is a couple hundred meters away, they ran through to the finish line and found Kipchoge and lifted him up on their shoulders, and they were all just sort of hoisting him up and reaching forward to slap him on the back. And, you know, like that, 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 you can't fake that. It was just a beautiful moment. They were so happy for him. And, and they were so happy to have been part of that moment. And so, yeah, I think, and I think they were really, throughout the race, it was interesting. I, I, at one point when Kipchoge was first starting to, to fade a little bit, I saw one of the pacers look back and just start pointing at his, at his own heel to say to Kipchoge, this is where you need to be. Come on, be right here. Yeah. And I, I, I've had that happen. I remember... I was running a half marathon maybe a, a, a decade ago against a, a couple of Kenyan runners, and I started to fade away. And we were all fighting for the same prize money. But as I started to fade, one of those Kenyan runners looked back, saw I was I was dropping back, and started to point at his heel. And at first, I couldn't figure out what he was doing. Then I realized he was saying, "Stick with me, come on, let's go." He still wanted to beat me, but he wanted to be my best, me to be at my best that day, and me to stick with him for as long as possible. Wow. So you know, I think this this pacing moment was tapping into a camaraderie that's there among runners even when they're trying to slit each other's throats on the track. that There's there's a sense that everyone wants to be the best, but everyone wants everyone else to be their best, too. Yeah. All right, guys, yeah. before we talk about the shoes, because, of course, we have to talk about the shoes, Alex, I just want to ask you to go back and sort of be in the moment a little bit, uh, right about at the halfway mark. Um, until about 11 miles, it looked like all three of them were on pace. And, again, sub-two-hour pace is four minutes and 35 seconds per mile, which is pretty mind-blowing. And then it looked like right around 11, DeSissa started to fall off. And then right around the halfway mark, Tedesse fell off. And Kipchoge went through 13.1 miles in 59.55. So right then, the, the, the die was cast for what the second 13.1 miles was going to be. It was, it was essentially a one-man show. What did it feel like there in Monza? Was there any thought that either DeSissa or Tedesse might gather themselves and, and rejoin Kipchoge? Or did people think that they were going to drop out entirely? I think everyone was pretty sure that uh, that was a one-way ticket off the, off the bus. They were, uh, you know, once you drop off at that pace, they're going so fast that to make it up was, was almost impossible. So, you know, DeSissa, everyone knew there was question marks about because he hadn't looked good in the half marathon. Everyone expected him to make it farther than he did, but it wasn't that surprising when he dropped off. And we thought, oh, well, two guys will, will keep rolling. That Tedessa started to fade that early was was frankly a surprise to me and I think to, to most other people. And at that point, I got to say, it was feeling pretty glum a little bit. In the, the, the vibe was, you know, obviously everyone was still cheering, like, hey, go, Elliot. But it's like it was a, there was a sense of kind of, Elliot, you're our only hope please keep going because otherwise it was going to be a very lonely last last half and and frankly i think given what happened to the other two probably no 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 one was super enthusiastic about or, or super optimistic about elliot's chances although he as, as we've discussed earlier he, he looked very relaxed so it was, there was i would say yeah that halfway point 
was the the point of oh my gosh what have they gotten themselves into this could be ugly yeah and as we said all three runners finished and there was a lot of conversation not surprisingly on social media during the broadcast that that well of course they they finished you know dollar sign dollar sign dollar sign um the implication being that there was uh, prize money on the line here and that if they didn't finish they either wouldn't get that prize money or they would get bonuses if they did a certain time nike has been pretty silent on this topic alex were you able to find out anything at all about what the the money situation was for these athletes no they they were very very closed uh, about any financial details about the overall costs of the project or about the specific incentives the only thing they would say is that you know everyone was compensated fairly to make up for the other races that they were foregoing to do this project so we don't know what the what the exact uh, arrangements were but if 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 you've talked to to Elliot Kipchoge you know and everyone says they don't do it for the money but if you talk to Elliot, you really get the sense that that's true. He he says, "Listen, I I uh, my goal here, my goal in any race I enter is just to do as as, as well as I can to and, to and in this particular race, it's to sort of enter and be part of history. Um, I know that if I run well, I and my family are going to do well out of it. So I don't worry about those details. And I, and I I think that's true. And I, you know, everyone likes money, but all three of these guys are among the most successful runners of their generation. If money was what was motivating them." they'd have already retired and be back on the farm in their home countries. Another thing, Alex, that I wanted to ask you about, and it was a persistent question throughout uh, the past few months before this event, and it was um, flying around social media again during the broadcast, and that was drug testing. There obviously is is doping in sport. There is doping in distance running. Nobody um, would deny that. What did you find out about the drug testing protocols, if anything, that these three athletes um, stuck to before the race? Yeah, in the end, it was it was like they followed the standard protocols for any other race. So the athletes were tested in accordance with because it was a sanctioned event. So they were tested by the Italian anti-doping authorities, uh, and and throughout the training, they were in the the normal international testing pool. So they were subject to random testing. One thing Nike didn't do, as far as I'm aware, at least, and they didn't say anything about it, is to add extra testing, sort of add a you know double the number of tests or or hire an independent body to to give more testing. I think it's a fair point that. Uh, that might have been a good use of a couple hundred thousand bucks to to sort of increase uh, the credibility of the project. But at the end of the day, I don't you know they're being tested frequently because they're star athletes. Adding more tests helps a little bit, but it doesn't change the fundamental uncertainty that unfortunately in this day and age, we look at extraordinary performances and we say, well, that was amazing. I hope he's not on drugs. And, and that's what I say about this. I, I don't I have no reason to believe that any of them are on drugs. But uh, history t- teaches us that we shouldn't think, assume that we know with 100%. Okay. Okay, to the shoes, which to some skeptics, I'm not one of them. I don't think either of you are either. Some skeptics believe this whole thing was all about selling more shoes and specifically selling as many pairs of this Vaporfly line as possible. How did the shoes do? Did, did the shoes improve anyone's performance by as much as 4%? Well, David, I mean, the record or the run was 2% faster than the, than, than the established or recognized world record. So clearly it didn't do 4%. So I think that tells us one thing. It's very difficult to translate uh, lab-based measurements of running economy, really even lactate threshold and VO2 max with any certainty to performance. And, and you know, these, these things can be measured in the lab, but they're, they're not perfect. 
and and how things perform over time is not perfect. But again, if Nike was strictly out to sell these shoes, uh, you think that they would have taken a lower risk strategy because, it, like I said earlier, if Kipchoge had cramped up at 23 or 24 miles, I mean, they would have really paid a price for that, really paid a price for that. So did the shoes help? Did they hurt? Is there individual variability? Uh, do they tell us about the limits of extrapolating from the lab to the uh, real world? All of the above. All of the above. I think they mostly helped. Uh, they clearly didn't help 4%, but um, as Alex has pointed out, they were looking for every little uh, edge they could get. And if they helped a half a percent or 1%, that's a big deal. Would they help more in some runners than others? Would they help more if somebody's trying to break four hours? Who knows? Well, on that note of, of testing all kinds of different pieces of equipment, there's a short piece of tape that I want to play for both of you. Uh, this is Matt Nurse, who is a vice president at the Nike Sports Research Lab. And he told uh, me a story when I was there on Nike's campus about um, one, one piece of equipment that the scientists thought would definitely make runners faster, but that really didn't work out. Yeah, I, I think when we look at... Um say, a runner's ability to get from A to B, we, we look at everything that either um, wastes energy, where, where are you spending energy doing something that perhaps you don't need, and then we look at areas to perhaps um, make more efficient use of where you're spending energy. And, and one of them, and it wasn't my idea, it's a brilliant idea from actually a person outside the lab, and he had a very simple observation that every morning when he got off the train, he would hook his thumbs into his backpack loops. And just because your body naturally, it, we're naturally lazy. We look for the most efficient way to get from A to B. And he noticed he was doing this um, arm thumb hooking thing and he wasn't swinging his arms. And so he came in and talked to uh, Gung Luo, who's our senior running researcher and said, hey, you know, I, I do this all the time. So we started to look at, you know, we know we already, literature's told us, our own researchers told, there's a cost to moving your arms. There's also a benefit just to counteract sort of the, the inertia that you have, that your body doesn't spin out of control when you're running. But there was this notion of, well, if we eliminated arm swing or we facilitated it, um, how much more effective would you be? And, and so we built a device that holds your arms. Um, and so you look like a, maybe a T-Rex and you sort of ran like a T-Rex. Your arms were tucked up against your chest and you looked really funny, but everybody could do it. And most people had performance benefits. And we, we tested Matt Tegenkamp, who's, who's a former Olympian, a fantastic runner that we have access to. And he was, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he was 4 to 5% more efficient running with this thing. I'm, I'm picturing like a sling of some kind or, or the parts of the backpack minus the pack, just the ones that go around your shoulders. Is that what this device was? It looked like a sling. It wasn't the full sort of silence of the lambs treatment, but it, was, it looked like a bit of a straight jacket that um, had these elastic elements tucked up under his armpits that he could hook his thumbs into. And it, it was a sling. So he was running. I mean, imagine tucking your thumbs into your armpits and running that way. It, was, you know, it wasn't quite that severe, but that's the basic visual. And he was, he was better. Like he... By, by every metric we had, was a more efficient runner and therefore should be a faster runner in, say, a 5K or 10K. It was sort of, um, but he hated it. Like, he despised it. He, he just couldn't see himself running. I mean, and it's awkward, but at the end of the day, too, if, if an athlete can't, um, they don't like the feel, they're not comfortable, or it just feels too awkward to them, all those other factors that we're trying to eliminate just get overridden by this one. And so ultimately, we, we didn't do it. It's, it's, we tried on a few people, universally disliked, um, even though it's better. So we, we ended up not going there. So again, that was Matt Nurse, who's a chief scientist at Nike. I love that story. It, it shows 
just how deeply they thought about every single detail. And it also reveals this great interplay between science and sport. And that even though there are things that scientists were convinced would help someone run better, at the end of the day, these are athletes. And, and, and if they don't feel good or if they don't believe in it, it was discarded. Uh, Alex, did you see any other evidence in, in Monza of things that were like this that were unexpected or that you had never seen before by any chance? Well, I think most of what they did, uh, we, we'd already seen peaks of before. But for people looking at, the, at what the what the guys were wearing, you know, with with tape on their legs and and uh, you know half tights with these funny little patterns on them, um, and and there were all these subtle details in the apparel that, if you look at it again, it goes back to what what Matt Nurse was saying about the difference between uh, you know what you see in the lab and what's going to actually matter to a runner. So I talked to one of the senior apparel physiologists and I said, "Okay, come on. Putting tape on their legs and and you know putting little bumps on their shorts to make it more aerodynamic. What does that really do?" And he said, "Well, you know, everything we've done, you know, f- f- it with the apparel, we think will make a difference of whole seconds." And I was like, "What does that mean?" He said, "Well, at least 1 second and no more than 60." But even if it's one second, we'll think it's worthwhile. And what he said is part of that is you have to go beyond the physiology and say, well, maybe it's one second in terms of wind. But if the athlete feels faster and feels good in it, so they, they in a sense, as, as much of their effort was devoted to this sort of thing that Matt was talking about, getting, getting in the athlete's head and finding out what made them feel good and made them feel fast. So that's the sort of reverse end of the spectrum compared to the sling looks good in the lab, works in the lab, but no one wants to wear it. And so what they ended up doing was the opposite, doing a bunch of, you know, maybe sort of semi-crazy things that the athletes felt good about, Mm. regardless of even if it was only a second of benefit. Fascinating. All right. I'm going to ask both of you to look into the crystal ball a little bit. First question, will we see Eliud Kipchoge in particular turn it around and do a fall marathon, maybe Berlin in September, Chicago in October, Amsterdam in October. Is that possible? I think Berlin in the fall is, is a good bet. Not a, not a lock, but a very, very good bet. Yeah, I, I would think he would too. And presumably he'll be taking a crack at the world record, yeah? He'd be crazy not to. <laughs> yeah. Okay, last question. I'd like to ask each of you to just briefly describe to me the attempt where the sub two marathon is eventually broken where is it when is it what does it look like oh boy so i i made a prediction three years ago in the magazine that it was going to be in saskatoon uh, and it was going to be in 2075 out on the prairies i think i'm going to have to revise that (laughs) i'm going to move it forward to within the next 10 years i kind of still want to put it in saskatoon because that's where uh, my mom is from um, but it would have to be a very calm day, and I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a, a big pack, a much bigger pack. There's going to be you know 15 people at the start, including you know plus maybe some some designated pacemakers, and a bunch of them are going to have been training together, not separately. They're going to be used to running together in a pack. They're going to be teammates, and they're going to be tapping into that sort of sense of working together towards a common goal, as opposed to three guys coming together just in the last week. I think it's going to be run at some place like the Yuma Proving Grounds right at sunset uh, in the middle of January when it's about 60 degrees, the temperature's going down, it's dry and it's not windy, on a completely flat loop course. Many of the principles we saw at Monza will be uh, used there. There'll be an invitational field of about 
50 people and a prize money scheme designed to get as many people as far along as possible so that at 35k there's perhaps five or six uh, runners left and then it's a you know whatever happens happens and I agree with Alex it'll happen in the next five ten years so I think uh, again if a deep pocketed sponsor wanted this to happen it, it, they could facilitate that sort of effort at, at, at a desert proving grounds uh, in a, on a cool uh, evening. All right. Well, I can't wait to see either or both of those things happen, hopefully very soon. Alex Hutchinson, you have covered this project for five months now so expertly. Thank you so much for, for everything and for this conversation. Thanks, David. It's been, uh, as you know, it's been a huge amount of fun. And Dr. Michael Joyner, you've been thinking about this sub-two-hour marathon for many, many years. It's been great getting your insight on this. Thanks for joining us. Always fun to talk about it, and I can't wait till it happens. That was my conversation with Runner's World contributing editor and columnist Alex Hutchinson and Dr. Michael Joyner. You can listen back to all of our coverage of Nike's Breaking Two project in episodes 33, 42, and 44. We'll also list them for you on our show page at runnersworld.com slash audio. Coming up, the latest step in my own moonshot, my journey toward a Boston qualifier. So today you are going to do your third benchmark time trial, and this is just a 2K time trial followed by uh, eight 200s. I love this workout. I love this workout. <laughs> you just love running fast. I do, but this 2K is so great. It just feels, the, that pace at that distance, I just, the, the past two I've done, I've loved. My running coach, Julia Lucas, and I are at the East River Park track in lower Manhattan. It's an overcast afternoon with a strong breeze coming off the river. I'm halfway through the third week of my monster month of training when mileage and intensity both peak, and I am bone tired. I had run 47 miles the previous week, the highest weekly total I had reached in almost 10 years. But, as you heard, I'm also almost giddy to be here, preparing to run hard and, best of all, pain-free. Six weeks ago, I had serious doubts that I would actually get to this point, or that I would have enough quality training under my belt to really have a shot at running a BQ at the end of May. I had just gotten over a calf strain, the second injury I had sustained in the early part of my training cycle. I had stopped running for five days because of the calf and had to ease back into running for two weeks so that it didn't flare up again. Plus, the stubborn, stabbing pain in my QL, that's the quadratus laborum, a deep abdominal muscle that feels like it's in your lower back, had not gone away, despite all the work I had done in the gym with my other coach, Joe Holder. To put it mildly, I was bummed out and behind schedule. But then things started to turn around. Ever since my first injury, a hip flexor strain in January, which itself had cost me a week of running, Joe had been preaching the virtues of prehab, not just treating injuries you've already got, but preventing them from occurring in the first place. That, he assured me, is what elite athletes do, and it means they spend as much time preparing for and recovering from workouts 
as they spend doing those workouts. Joe also told me that the holy trinity of preventative health was coach plus athlete plus physical therapist. So every other week when I came into New York City to train with Joe and Julia, I also paid a visit to finish line physical therapy to help get rid of the problems I had and prevent others from flaring up. There, I worked with a therapist named Jason LaCritz. Jason is an avid runner. He ran competitively in college at Florida State and is yet another person on my team with a detailed understanding of the runner's body. It was in a light bulb moment with Jason that I finally got to the root of my QL pain. I learned that I was right-bodied. Here's Jason explaining what that means. So, um, if you take it back a little bit, you talk about anatomy inside your body, you're very asymmetrical. You have a heart on one side, liver on one side, stomach on one side. And those positions of those organs kind of makes your right diaphragm work better, work stronger. So everybody likes to breathe into that right side. Um, that breathing to the right side causes you to like to be on your right hip, on your right side. Um, so it makes it hard for you to get to the left side. So basically, if you think about running. Okay, this leg, is important. Uh, and it was a total revelation right for me. A running stride essentially has two components. A right stance, when your weight briefly lands on your right foot as it moves behind you, at which point you push off your right foot as your left leg swings forward to begin the same process on the other side, known as the left stance. Ideally, 50% of the work is done by your right side and 50% by your left. When you watch an elite runner, like say Eliud Kipchoge, that's usually what you see. Fluid, efficient, seemingly effortless forward motion. It's beautiful. Your lower body is designed to call primarily on three muscle groups to work together through this cycle. First, the adductors, which run from the inside of the knee up into the pelvis and are commonly known as groin muscles. Secondly, your outer ab muscles, especially the obliques. And lastly, your glutes, especially the gluteus medius on the outside of your hip. So, when you move from right stance to left stance phase, those muscles on your left side should be doing most of the work. The problem was my body wasn't truly going into left stance phase, or at least I wasn't using those primary muscle groups, but I was still running. That's because our bodies have an amazing ability to compensate. When one part of the machine, as Julia calls it, is not doing its job, another part will pick up the slack to keep us upright and moving forward. Somewhere along the line, I began using my QL to move into my left stance phase and also to bend over to pull on my left sock and tie my left shoe and climb out of my car. The QL is not designed for this kind of work. It's primarily a stabilizer muscle and it became overloaded. This is why it had been sticking that blade into my back so often for a year and a half. Over a period of six weeks and through careful, often minute movements, Jason helped me rebuild my running stride from the ground up. I did countless lunges and lots of reps with an elastic band providing resistance. And the light bulb really went off when Jason showed me an exercise called the adductor pullback. It's too hard to explain in audio form alone, but we'll have more details on our show page. The point is that these drills and exercises it's really boring stuff, but it taught me to locate my left adductors and obliques and glute medius muscles and to call on them when I'm running so that my QL can stay out of the mix. 
It was like learning how to throw with my left hand. But my back pain started to disappear. So this is one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this Moonshot project. If you care about running, and especially if you have specific goals you want to achieve, it's worth spending the time to understand your biomechanics and to put in some hours doing tedious, unglamorous, but necessary drills and exercises. I know it seems like those things will take you away from running, but they actually will bring you closer to your running by sharpening your appreciation for what your body does and can do. And all of that can actually rejuvenate your running life. At least that's what it's done for me. And despite being a poster boy for it, I had never even heard or read anything about right-bodiedness. So after one of my sessions with Jason, I asked him how common this problem is among runners. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's very common. So every human has the same insides, unless something weird happened in birth, you know, where organs flip or something. But everybody else has the same organs. So everybody's going to be underneath it all right-side dominant. Uh, even lefties are right side dominant. 90% of our patients are, at, are runners, and most of those people have trouble getting to the left side. And if they, if, they, if they don't have trouble getting in there, it's because they've taught their body how to do it somehow. Most people have not. It's, it's hard to do it without knowing what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea. This is all totally new, and it's kind of mind-blowing, to be honest. Yeah. Here's a way to test right-bodiedness for yourself. Stand just on your right leg. Notice the feeling in your right glute, adductor, and oblique muscles. Now switch to your left leg. Do those muscles on your left side feel equally activated? If not, you may not be fully engaging your left side muscles or getting into left stance as you run. Learning how to get into my left stance has not only gotten rid of my back pain, it has radically improved my running stride. And this has made me faster and more efficient so I can go longer with the same effort and, added bonus, no more pain. As I said earlier, the work I had been doing with Joe was also a huge reason my QL pain had improved. And after a grueling early morning workout with Joe the last week of April, he admitted to me that he'd actually known back in January that I was doomed for injury. After I had essentially failed a test called the Functional Movement Screening, or FMS for short, because I had pain in my QL while I was doing several of the exercises. When I, when I took that FMS, when I failed my FMS, yeah. what did you think was going to happen with this training program? What did I think was going to happen? You want the honest answer? Yeah. Um, I had a feeling that you had an increased likelihood of injury. Um, so my concern was before we got into it that I wanted to bulletproof you. I wanted to treat it like a preseason where you come in, you're feeling fresh. So based off the FMS, I was a little bit worried and concerned, but said, let's give it a go. Let's see what happens. We know what happened. We learned our lesson and we bounced back well. So, But you basically knew I was going to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. And then we had that heart to heart when you were out in Pennsylvania where you had to basically tell me I had to stop running. Yeah, I mean, straight up. Uh, I knew it was going to be a, a, a difficult conceptualization. Um, I pushed it. Yeah, we had a heart-to-heart, and, and you bought in, which is the most important thing. If, if the athlete doesn't buy in, it doesn't matter what the coaching methodology is, if, if it's, even if it's great. All right, so what do you think about this race in this BQ? Um, I, I, this is my thing, right? It's like 
the threshold for your physicality is already there, right? Like us as coaches will make sure that it's there. That's what we're doing. The thing is, is that there's that mind-body connection. And what we talked about previously with your running is that you kind of hit a wall, right? And I think that wall first begins mentally, not, not really physically, because you've, you've adapted appropriately. So we just want to make sure that um, we uh, have a few strategies, both mentally and uh, to, to calm you down. Once the team got me physically healthy, they once again had to rethink my training plan. And they had to take a calculated risk. My original 16-week training program had four separate cycles. Each cycle had three weeks of work and one week of recovery. But because of my injuries, they had to dedicate all four weeks of my third cycle, that's the monster month, to hard work. Otherwise, I simply would not have had time to pack in enough quality training to get ready to run a sub-330 marathon on race day. They also had to crank up the intensity of certain workouts, especially my long runs. Originally, I was supposed to have logged runs of 15, 16, and 18 miles before the monster month even began. But I had not gone longer than 13 miles. Going forward, I would be building up those runs from 15 to 16 to 18 to 20. But I would also essentially be adding a speed workout into the middle of each one also in a carefully planned progression. Repeats of one mile, and then two, and then three, and then four at tempo pace, which is right around my marathon pace of eight minutes per mile, or a bit faster. So, these workouts would be doing double duty. No doubt about it, it was a Hail Mary. The risk was that I would get hurt again when faced with this mountain of intense miles. But the team knew there really was no choice. The alternative was that I would try to run a marathon I wasn't physically ready for. And that's the vicious circle I was trying to get out of. Breaking that cycle was the whole point of embarking on this moonshot project in the first place. Plus, the team had faith that my body would hold up thanks to all the strength work I had done and all the progress I had made with my mobility and the changes I had made to my running stride. I was a different runner than the one they first tested on November 30th. The first couple weeks of the Monster Month went great. I really turned a corner for real for the first time during a threshold run with Julia in New York in mid-April. Remember, threshold runs were always a critical part of my plan, designed to improve my lactate threshold, or the fastest pace that I can sustain for a long period of time. This workout called for five miles at around 7.25 pace, my lactate turn point. I was nervous and even nauseous beforehand because I hadn't gone that hard for that long in quite a while. It was a beautiful, sunny, early spring day, and Central Park was packed with runners and cyclists who turned out like bears emerging from hibernation. After our usual warm-up, Julie and I eased toward 7.25 pace. I expected to find pain and nagging doubt, but instead, I fell immediately into the zone, that blissful flow state that athletes cherish and cling to whenever they find it. Julia and I ran side by side and stride for stride. We barely spoke. She would occasionally calmly tell me our split times at the end of each mile. 7.27, good. 7.18, let's hold there. 7.15, dial it down a touch. 
Occasionally, she'd give me cues on my form. Bring your shoulders down a bit. Keep your footfalls light. I never glanced at my watch. I didn't want it to end. After finishing the fifth mile, a hundred yards from where the New York City Marathon finishes, you would have thought one of us had won the New York City Marathon. We high-fived and then hugged and just started laughing at how amazing and easy it was. For the first time since I'd gotten injured, I saw huge progress, and I knew now that this BQ was still within reach. Just four days later, I did a 15-miler on Patriots Day morning in Boston. I was with my friend Chris Heisler and his older brother John, who are also running the Bayshore Marathon and have offered to pace me on race day. So we decided to do a dry run of sorts. We got up super early and beginning on Hereford Street, where Boston marathoners prepare to turn onto the home stretch on Boylston, we ran backward on the empty course toward Brookline and Newton. We ran through the famous Newton Hills, including Heartbreak Hill, and then we turned around and ran through them again on our way back to Boston's Back Bay. It was warm, and I definitely struggled a bit. But this was the longest run I had done in a couple of years, and four of the miles were run at 7.45 pace. Another huge step forward. So I brought a real sense of momentum and optimism to the track in East River Park for my third two-kilometer benchmark workout with Julia. Yeah! Ah! Ah! 15 seconds faster than you've ever done before. Went through at 6.30. Ah. Beautiful! Oh. <laughs> was what awesome. was it? That was awesome. 8.06, went through at 6.31. Oh. 8.22 was it before. Holy Moses. Nice! <laughs> that hurt. That was really good. And you felt, you, you, nothing ever broke down. You just felt strong every step. Um, All right, so what are we doing now? I'm going to go ahead and say that again. I ran the first mile in 6.31 and hit the 2K benchmark in 8.06. This was a benchmark PR, down from the 8.46 2K I had run in late December and the 8.22 I had run two weeks after that. So even though the past 16 weeks had been a total soap opera, marked by injuries and fits and starts and a constantly changing plan, the data did not lie. This was a very, very good sign. After the workout that day, back at my hotel, Julia reflected on how my monster month of training was going and explained its purpose. We're making a lot happen in your body in a very short period of time. And it means that you don't have those recovery weeks built in. We're just creating this mountain of miles, accumulated fatigue. You're going to feel it every day, even when you're not running. You're just going to be a little, your body's working really hard to, to recover from the work that you're asking it to do. We're walking this, this fine line where, you're, where we don't want to push too hard, uh, get you overtired or injured, but we do want to go right up to that line of, what we can get out of of you. <laughs> so you said something to me a few weeks ago when we started this phase, this intense mountain phase, as you just said, that pretty much every workout was critical, right? And I needed to prepare for each workout, recover from each workout. You know, hopefully each workout would be 
successful, I would accomplish it and accomplish the goals of each workout. Do you think I've done that so far in this phase? I'm nodding. <laughs> yes. Every workout has just been like a gift, just so exciting. You've been a little bit nervous, but just come to practice head held high and knowing exactly what you were doing. When we say every workout is critical, that doesn't mean that every workout needed to be a home run. We didn't want to be sprinting at the end of every workout. Rather, you wanted to come to practice with a quiet confidence, know exactly why you were there, what you wanted out of the day, and then check that box off. So you've certainly run harder workouts that have had you gasping at the end and lying down on the track and, and really impressed with your numbers. Uh, we're not necessarily going for that every time. You're, you're tired, but in a very intentional way. Uh, and you have, you have been. You've, every workout has just been like a, another pat on the back. Did you think I was going to get here? Uh, at the very beginning, yes, I thought you would get here. When the first, basically the first stimulus uh, you gave us rather than a, than a workout was an injury, it's like the first thing that happened. It, there, there was definitely a question, both in terms of how your body would respond, because that's not necessarily always something we're going to be able to control, even with the best coaching and best medical. You know, the, the body reigns supreme. You have to run in that. <laughs> but also, you are a very driven athlete who wants to grab the bull by the horns and just force a thing to happen and um, really relaxing and being confident that the best way to be the best runner that you can be is sometimes by loosening that grip. Uh, And that felt like what was going to be hardest. It took us a long time to decide that we should actually take time off. The big question mark with you was not just whether you can do this, but whether you're going to let yourself do this, whether it's going to be a boxing match with your own body. You can maybe box your way through a, a mile with your own body when you're sort of revolting. <laughs> but a marathon needs to be a, a partnership-minded body. Right. Uh, and I, I really feel that in the last few weeks you've reached that, that flow point where you just know exactly what you're doing and your body understands what you need from it. And, you know, every day has been better than the last. But we are not out of the woods yet. The next two weeks of my Monster Month will be especially crucial. My hardest workouts are still to come. First, Yasso 800s, a great but brutal litmus test of marathon readiness. And just three days later, the crucible of every marathon training plan, the 20-mile long run. There's a lot to build on and feel good about, yes. But there still is no margin for error. If I don't nail both of these workouts, my BQ might slip again from being a strong possibility to a distant fantasy. That's coming up in a future episode. If you missed any of the previous installments of this Moonshot Marathon series, check out episodes 38, 41, 46, and 49. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and food and nutrition editor Heather Mayer-Irvin. Okay, so we often have a lot of fun on The Kick, and we will have fun this week. Um, But we wanted to start off by talking about a piece we put on the website about 
Gabriel Grunewald, um, who at 30 years old uh, recently announced that she's battling cancer for the fourth time in really the past eight years. Um, Heather, despite this, um, very impressive. Um, she's She did what a lot of us do when dealing with adversity as runners, and she went out and she ran and she competed this past weekend. Yeah, uh, the Peyton Jordan Invitational was this past weekend. Uh, Gabe ran the 1500 meters. She ran a 420, mm-hmm. which was about 19 seconds off her personal best. Mm-hmm. But she ran. And right now, it's really not about time. It's about getting out there, using running and her team as a distraction uh, as she kind of battles her way through another another round of cancer. Yeah. And she competed at the Olympic trials last year, had just gone through like another scare, but was better and competed there. And we spoke with her back then. You can see the video on our website. Um, And just so people know, what type of cancer is she dealing with right now? And what are her next steps? So in 2009, she was diagnosed with a carcinoma in her salivary gland. And she had surgery to remove the gland and the tumor. Uh, Two years later, it came back, this time in her thyroid. And then last year, it came back again, uh, and she had surgery to remove a tumor from her liver. And she actually shared a really inspiring post on Instagram right. with the scar. Uh, I got a lot of support from that. Um, and now, you know, most recently, they found some several small tumors in her liver. As of our recording this week, she's supposed to see uh, a really good specialist in New York. Um, so, you know, all of us here, we wish her the best. And I know all of our listeners Um, really are sending positive vibes her way. Um, Feel free to follow her on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter anyway, and um, just give her the love that uh, she needs right now. Yeah, go Gabe. Um, So moving on in the kick, um, in this episode, we've spoken a lot about breaking two from the past weekend and the fastest marathoners in the world. Um, But our own video producer, Derek Call, he was able to get a few minutes with the world's fastest man, Usain Bolt. So why are we talking with Usain? How did Derek catch him? So Derek was at the launch of the uh, new Puma Speed Ignite NetFit shoe. It's actually a really unique shoe. If you see it, it almost has a fishnet look to it around the entire Hmm. upper. It's supposed to help with the fit a little bit. You can actually, I'm terrible at getting like the right fit on certain shoes. So you can play with the laces on it. Will it make you run like Usain? I, I believe that's in the pitch of the shoe. Excellent. That you can run just like a 10-second, 100-meter dash. So Smiling at the camera while you do it. Smiling at the camera as you do it. So that is great. Um, so beyond the shoes, Derek was able to talk to Usain, right? He went around the office you know, pulling questions right. from all the staffers. And, uh, you know, what, what did he ask him? First, he did ask one um, serious racing question. He asked Usain, about his last track meet, which is scheduled for um, later this year. So let's let's hear you saying talk a little bit about that. When is your your last meet officially? Uh, I don't know. Uh, so far, I haven't really booked anything after the World Championships. Uh, but uh, you never know. After World Championship, I might decide to go another race. Depends on how I'm feeling. But right now, uh, my last race is the four by one at the World Championships. Awesome. You're going to be retiring from the 100 and 200 meters. Will we be seeing you doing a 5K or a half marathon? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no chance. <laughs> uh, when are you finally going to race Mo Farah? Uh, it's too late now. It's too late now. All right. Um, what world record outside of running would you like to hold? Uh, 
probably the most Premier League goals in, a, in, in the season. <laughs> okay, and then Derek had some fun with him, as you said. We, we were coming up with fast questions for Usain Bolt. Here, here are just a, a few of them. You can be honest here. Are you tired of people asking you about fast things? <laughs> One thing, I get tired of people trying to race me. That's what I'm getting tired of. Everybody always wants to race me. Okay, so th thanks for Derek for providing the audio for that and doing it and meeting Usain Bolt. You know, it's a hard job to go meet the fastest man in the world and mm -hmm. the guy who has all those gold medals. Um, <laughs> if you want to see the full video, um, head to our episode page at runnersworld.com slash audio. All right, Heather, we both participated in this last week. It's the final thing we want to cover this week on The Kick. Um, we've covered beer miles on The Kick mm -hmm. before. And uh, as our food nutrition editor, you know, we, we have a lot of taco recipes up on the site and in the magazine. Um, but the two have never been combined until last Friday on Cinco de Mayo. Um, tell everybody what we took part in. We created, head, headed by our gear editor, Jeff Dengate. Uh, unofficial race director. Unofficial race director. A taco mile yeah. right here at Runner's World headquarters. Yeah. So just like a beer mile. So you set up kind of a quarter mile loop, beer mile beer, run a lap beer, run a lap four times. We did that with uh, hard shell tacos from Taco Bell. Um, not Maybe not the best decision we've all ever made as a staff, but we did it behind our offices on our trail. We even had a table set up with our names on it as like a refueling station. And no one threw up. No one threw up. Um, we ordered 100 tacos for, every, I think we had about 20 people. Yep. In this, And as we said, Jeff Dengate, this was his idea to kind of get it going. It's something fun to do on a Friday. We even had judges um, making sure, you know, food was fully swallowed before we tried to run with a mouthful of And that of was taco. a safety call safety because, call. you know, you run and eat and you might choke. Especially with the hard shell. The hard shell, you don't yeah. want You don't want that lodged in your gullet, you know. Um, so we <laughs> some people even took part in a relay you and i both participated um in the full event mm -hmm. some people just did a lap um either way it was fun um and of course we have video footage of and a, and a <laughs> lot of photos of us looking in our best state Pristine. ever yeah just <laughs> chowing down on tacos um let's take a listen to a little bit of how the race sounded on friday Thank you for coming out for the first annual Taco Mile. This is going to be a feat of strength. You eat a taco, you chew it up, you swallow it, you run a lap. This is going to be a long day. Four tacos, four laps. It's like a beer mile, but we're not doing beer. Eat that cheese, bro. Who chose crunchy? Oh, it sucks. It is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Woo! My baby's already questioning my parenting skills. <laughs> okay, so it was a lot of fun as you could hear from the video, um, check out the video on our website for the full thing. Um, but I'm sure everyone is wondering who won the event, right, Heather? Yes. And it wasn't you. It was no. not myself. I came in fourth. It um, was me. It was it was me, Brian. It was Kid Fox. It was me. Spoiler we, alert. We had to bring him in so he could gloat all about it. He oh, came yeah. in here with We Are the Champions, and we made yeah. him turn it off. <laughs> it was the greatest running accomplishment of the week. I it, don't know what else happened. Nothing else happened. But nothing else of note. Yeah. The only thing I think people really want to know is um, how did you plan your run? Like, how did you strategize for the taco mile? Did you prep for it or was it just like... Okay, well, first I want to say that nobody believed in me. No. That's in true. Of, in terms of the odds makers on this, we'd put me at like one in 
200. Did like, they put you in front of me, the pregnant runner, though? I, I don't even know. Maybe not. That's really more remarkable with how well Heather it, did. Let's I know, take I away know. from let's, your accomplishment. Yeah, with yeah. bean burritos. With I bean burritos. Say. People would have won a lot of money had they bet on me because, again, <laughs> I went I don't know this. what the Vegas lines were. Yeah. For it. <laughs> <laughs> I went into this with a you know small strategy that nobody else followed, which was to crunch the taco before you put it in your mouth so you don't oh. waste time chewing. And I just destroyed everybody. And you didn't have any overage that fell on the ground? No. I, I saw we, a little bit. No, no. Okay. Oh, now we're going to get after the controversy. Call Derek Murphy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I did I did discover that strategy like on the second to last lap where I was like, if I yeah, break this late. in half, it will help me get it. Help me get it in my mouth. And guys, it wasn't even close. I it won by like close. 25 won, seconds. Yeah. Who so, came in second? Uh, Robert, Robert Reese. Oh, and then he ran like eight miles after yeah. that. Too. And yeah. then uh, Derek Kahl, who was the odds-on favorite. He was the odds-on favorite. He I came just in third. Him. And so then I, I was in a distant fourth. I, I mean, I just, I really just think in a nutshell. In a taco shell? Yeah, in yeah. a taco shell. If you believe in yourself enough, you can achieve taco mile stardom. Fine. If you could do another mile like this, what, what food do you think you would want to eat, um, I would. Heather? Want to try donuts? Donuts. I've kit. done donut runs before, but I want to try a donut mile. Okay, Kit. Well, I actually want to do the uh, the Chipotle challenge next. Oh. oh boy! Which I hear is uh, someone's done this before. Four Chipotle burritos, uh, oh. and you 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 have to eat four Chipotle burritos in under twenty five minutes, and then run a mile in under seven thirty. So wait, do they split it up quarter by quarter? No, 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 no. It's just it's four Chipotle burritos. Sitting and then a mile in under seven thirty. Sounds so. like fun, and I'll of course, and of course, I would I would go with uh, some cereal somehow. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, you, you would do four with bowls milk of cereal. and cereal. Yeah. That sounds like a blast that for a mile. Sounds um, fun. But whatever your food passion is, um, you know, get some friends together. You can do this yourself. It did not. It was not very hard for us to pull this together. We I mean, had a lot Jeff of fun leading with us it. too. Yeah. So whatever you want to do, um, as long as you're safe with it. Don't run with a mouthful of food. <laughs> you should be okay. And, you know, back off if it's not, like, feeling great. If you your baby's not uh, <laughs> loving it, just just stop. Yeah. I didn't, though. I finished. Yeah. In Taco Bell, if uh, you want to sponsor me, let me know. Give me a call. All right. Heather, thank you. Kit, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week's show. If you haven't done so yet... Please give us a rating and review in iTunes. Your feedback is really important to making this a better show, and we greatly appreciate it. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Next week, we will be rebroadcasting one of our favorite episodes from last summer, producer Sylvia Ryerson's trip to the Pocono Raceway. We'll be back in two weeks with the last segment of my Moonshot series, before my marathon on May 27th. Wow, saying it out loud makes me a little bit nervous. I can't believe the day is actually almost here. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.